Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every program, we talk about a new book connected to Europe and hear from the author. In this program, that book is London, A Social and Cultural History, 1550 to 1750, by Robert Buchholz and Joseph Ward. In those extraordinary two centuries, London went from being a relatively provincial place to a genuine world city and the capital of a country that was rapidly becoming the most important in the world. This book is full of remarkable detail about people's lives and how this transformation took place. I hope you enjoy the interview with one of the authors. Well, I'm pleased to say that joining us on the line from over in uh, Mississippi is Joseph P. Ward, one of the co-authors of London, A Social and Cultural History, 1550 to 1750. So welcome, Joe. Good to be here. Um, it's especially good for me to be able to talk to you because obviously London's the city in which I'm sitting, uh, high in Westminster, in the offices where I work uh, at a think tank. Um, and reading this book gave me an insight to some of the things that turned this city, which of course at the minute is in the spotlight uh, as the host of the Olympics, uh, into what we might call a real uh, world city. Is that something that, that happened during this time period, 1550 to 1750, wasn't it? Yes, and that's that's really why we selected that period for this study. Um, is uh, our estimation uh, based on the the many articles and books uh, we've drawn upon? This is a our book is a work of synthesis. Is that I think a consensus is emerging amongst historians that this was really the crucial period of a couple centuries. It's a big period. Uh, when London emerged socially and culturally uh, as as a as an important uh, uh, international city, uh, and in many ways the, the London that we would recognize today, can we start off just by going back and, and being a bit more personal? Yourself, how did you get involved in uh, you know in writing this book? What got you interested? And tell us a little bit about your own background. Uh, we should, of course, mention that that the other co-author is a is a gentleman called Robert Buchholz. Before we go any further, but you're the person that we're talking to, so let's hear about yourself. Yes, um, I, my my research has been on um, the social and cultural history of of London. Uh, I, I I did a book with Stanford. Uh, on um, looking at the role of the trade guilds, which in London's case were known as livery companies, uh, in the metropolitan economy of the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, and uh, Bob Buchholz uh, is, is a, a specialist in the court, especially the court in the later Stuart period. The court of Queen Anne was the focus of his, his first book. Uh, and, and Bob is at Loyola University in Chicago, uh, and he's been there for a couple of decades. And uh, over the years, uh, in part because he's living in a big city, he, he decided it would be interesting to develop a course on the history of London as a way to draw students into English history. And that course was very successful. Uh, and 
a number of years ago, uh, Beatrice Real, an editor from Cambridge, was um, just on a visit to Chicago, and she met Bob and asked what he was working on, and and they became interested in working together on a, on a book on London. And as Bob thought about it, um, he he was prepared um, to build the to build the book around the themes he developed in his course, but he thought it would be useful to to partner uh, with someone whose whose research in London would complement his own. Uh, and so Bob is more of the West End. I'm more of the city in terms of our research. And uh, and so that's how we that's how we co- decided to collaborate uh, on this on this project. Now, the book itself, uh, there are two themes that that, that you bring up, um, first of which is perhaps the most vital question of all. And that is how and these these, these are pretty much your words, how the sleepy port and court town of a second rate power on the fringes of Europe became an imperial capital, world city and harbinger of modernity. And then the second question is how six to eight thousand migrants a year came to London and became Londoners. Well, let's start off with that first question. Um, and there's a quote that that we can bring in, and that is, with the possible exception of Amsterdam, no other city on the planet did more to catalyze modernity. So what kind of city are we dealing with in 1550? You know, in 1550, we're so used, I think, these days with, with, with the way we think about things, with sort of league tables, right? Now, who's, who's in the top 10? Who's in the top 20? These, these kinds of things. In, in, in 1550... I think it's fair to say that that England was was not a major power in in Europe uh, at that time. I think we'd, we'd still be looking to Spain, uh, uh, certainly as as taking the initiative in in, in many areas. Um, and you know, England in in, in 1550 uh, is uh, is still dealing with the challenges of uh, the Reformation. Uh, that was during Edward's reign. So you had a king who is who was a minor. Uh, and, and so forth, uh, and so England is is not going to be at the top of the of, of the chart. Uh, I think that's fair to say, uh, and it's going to be a city that is uh, largely going to be contained within the footprint that it had uh, at the time of of the Black Death. Okay, it's it's going to be a city. So that's the 14th difficult. century, the Black Death. That, that's right. The the the, the thirteen the, the thirteen forty eight to fifty uh, uh, massive epidemic, uh, and so London as England was still in a kind of recovery. It's still in a transitional phase uh, in in fifteen fifty. Uh, Westminster. Uh, it's it's important to keep in mind is a, is a separate. Uh, borough, it's a separate entity from the city of London, but the two are neighbors on on the north bank of the of the Thames, uh, and and so London is very important to England in in 1550. It's the major international port. It's by far and away the largest uh, urban center, uh, and it is with Westminster next door uh, the seat of national government. So so those those elements are in play, uh, but it's it's going to be overshadowed by the major cities in Spain and Italy, uh, the Low Countries. Th- those are the areas that uh, I think were most dynamic uh, in the middle of the 16th century. And the population in the 16th century, uh, you write down at about 120,000 
people. And in the period that we're talking about, it grows all the way to 675,000. So that's quite a, quite, quite a shift, especially because the death rate is so high during this period. Uh, and you actually suggest that, uh, obviously, this means... This puts a bigger emphasis on on the role of migration within uh, London, uh, into London within that time. Um, can you just to, to complete things? Can you give a picture of of where you leave us at the end of the book, the the London of seventeen fifty? The the London of seventeen fifty is, I think, it's fair to say, going to be at the very top of the table of of dynamic urban centres in Europe and indeed the Atlantic world. Uh, and and in, in in London's growth and development are very much intertwined with the growth and development of of England. Uh, England in 1750 is a very different place than England in 1550. Uh, and so London and England have sort of grown up together. Uh, and uh, London is is going to uh, be far and away many times larger than any of the other cities. Uh, in England in 1750, uh, with Westminster now kind of fully integrated in an urban, um, you know, metropolitan uh, society. Uh, and, and I think what we'd have to say in 1750 is that there's been explosive growth uh, in overseas trade, in shipping. So the Thames estuary uh, is just going to be filled with with boats, large and small, the great ocean-going vessels, uh, which can't make it very far up uh, to the sea itself, and so they have to offload into lighter boats and the warehousing and the, all the industries that grow up around shipping going right down uh, the Thames for probably a couple of miles uh, past the tower by 1750. So, so London in 1750 is a center of international trade and commerce, of, of national government, national government that is increasingly uh, bureaucratic. Uh, you, you've, got, you've got a tremendous uh, development of banking, of finance. You have a national bank and a national debt. You have the, the insurance industry, which is, which is really growing rapidly. Uh, and of course, London is also going to be a great center for culture and the arts. And uh, and here we're talking not only about the patronage networks around the the, the, the wealthy bankers and aristocrats, but things like the Royal Society, um, you have lecture series. Um, you know, it, it, London is going to be a, a, a site for uh, theater and, and public arts uh, in in ways that it, that it wasn't. Uh, in, in 1550. So by 1750, London is the capital of an emerging imperial power. It's the center of national government, imperial government, the center of commerce and trade and finance, and the center of arts and culture. One thing that I particularly liked about the book was the way that you you start off with something of a almost a walking tour of 1550 London and you end up with a 1750 walking tour of London uh literally taking you step by step along certain streets and explaining what they're like and and what life is like in those places. Um if I was to be somebody in the London of the 1550 
uh, and you took me on this walking tour in 1750. Do you do you think I'd really understand and and uh, relate to what I'm looking at? Because of course, you, London didn't just change in terms of size. A lot of it did physically change because of things like the Great Fire of London along the way. I, I think one of the first things that would be the same, of course, is the river. And and the Thames is, I think, so easy to overlook. You know, we just take we take it for granted. Mm. And and I think that that is going to be the common baseline, if you will, uh, in 1550 and in 1750. You're going to orient yourself uh, uh, to the river. The tower is still the tower. And Westminster Abbey is still Westminster Abbey. Mm-hmm. So so that the bookends, uh, east, west, are, are still going to be there, although crowded in and lots of development. So... So if we could magically transport the Londoner of 1550 uh, to 1750, I suspect that person would be able to orient herself or himself to those, those great landmarks. But, of course, physically the most obvious change is St. Paul's. St. Mm-hmm. Paul's burned down and so completely transformed with Wren's uh, master, masterpiece uh, after, after the fire. So it's, it's going to be where it belongs but a completely different building. And I think that that would probably strike our time traveler uh, with a bit of awe. Um, The main street plan of the central city, yes, the fire happened. Some streets were widened and uh, and so forth. But the basic footprint is going to be similar. What the person is going to notice is buildings are increasingly made of brick and stone, not timber and thatch. Right, so the, the the material, the fabric of the built environment will be different. I think the person will notice how the what we think of as the West End, Covent Garden in West, sort of the the the, the space, the open fields that may have been present between Westminster and the city. Those are all filled in, and they're filled in with handsome homes and neighborhoods that are laid out in a sort of rational 18th century you know square pattern and and then i think everything else there's just going to be more of right so 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 the 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 expanse of the metropolis the built the built up area would be much greater uh to to the north to the west to the south but especially along the river going eastward i think i think the the, the amount of time it would take to walk from the end of metropolitan London in the east to the end of metropolitan London in the west would, of course, be much, much greater in 1750. It, it, would, be, it would be better to take the tube uh, <laughs> than to walk, uh, whereas in 1550, I think walking would still make sense. So there's continuity and change. The river is still there. The tower, Westminster Abbey, St. Paul's is still there, although it's completely different. So, so the big landmarks... Are still there. The bridge is still the bridge, although again it's going to look different. But that key crossing is still going to be there. Absolutely. Uh, one of the big undertones of the book, which I found most interesting, was the fact that you described the London of 1550 having a fairly fixed hierarchy. Uh, what you describe as the great chain of being, obviously keenly knitting into you know political. Uh, into into the world of politics and religion, where everybody had their own level and they stuck at it and they went through life and then died and hoped to go to heaven or whatever. And then in by 1750, the whole of the hierarchy, the, 
the London of 1550 had in the great chain of being was was exploded. And I suppose the example of this that you use is is the is the tale of Dick Whittington, who uh, al- although he was a, a, a figure in real life in the tale, he came from London from a very uh, came to London from a very humble background, which wasn't true in real life, and then became Lord Mayor, which was one of the most supreme positions. And that 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 kind of explains how London changed as a, as a place in which people could do business and find their fortune. Yes, what, what's interesting about about the legend of Dick Whittington is the fact that it's a legend, and it's a legend that evolves over time, and it, it, it really decouples from the historical figure. And, and the legend sends a number of, of messages to the Londoner or the would-be Londoner, the, the, the young person in a provincial community who hears the legend, perhaps um, told uh, uh, over dinner or, or may have read a chapbook version or, or heard a chapbook version read allowed to a group of people in a, in a provincial community. The, the legend, on the one hand, says rapid um, advancement is, is possible. And rapid advancement is possible, especially through trade. Okay. Now, luck is required. You need to have a cat that is in high demand in some faraway land overrun by, by, by mice. Okay. So there's an element of luck. But there's also, crucially in this legend, an element of providence, okay? That there's a divine force that is guiding this. And that the person who is uh, rapidly enriched is, is going to understand that he or she has a deep responsibility to give back to society. Uh, the London in the early modern period was a London that had a social safety net based almost entirely on private philanthropy. Uh, There was the Elizabethan Poor Law, and yes, there were collections made at the the parochial level, but but the need for social, what we we would think of in modern terms as social services, far outstripped the official means to take care of people. And so almshouses, for example, uh, or any number of schemes for outdoor relief, many of which uh, were were distributed by London's livery companies or parishes, um, the hospitals, the system of hospitals, uh, for good or ill. I mean, these are hospitals that that uh, I would not necessarily feel comfortable checking into myself these days. But the point is, private philanthropy was essential to maintaining any kind of social cohesion uh, in in this period of rapid growth. And so the legend of Dick Whittington was one in which it said, yes, anything is possible in London. Uh, A a street urchin, a vagrant, could, through a stroke of luck and providence, become so wealthy that he could become uh, Lord Mayor of London. But he will have to take responsibility for this. He'll have to understand his obligation to his fellow men, and he he will distribute his wealth through philanthropy. What was London like in 1550? Uh, we had this enormous amount of uh, internal migration, inward migration into London over these 200 years. So, so there must have been something attracting people. Was it, was it just a question of, of the fact that this great chain of being could be broken or were there other factors driving it or, or pushing things from, uh, from elsewhere? These questions you ask are the questions that continue to fascinate us. And, and they're the questions that remain just beyond 
our grants because so many of the uh, migrants to London were not literate. Or if they were literate, perhaps they could read a bit, but they couldn't write. We just don't have the volume of records we'd feel comfortable with. Um, Today, for example, uh, everyone has a Facebook page. So future historians interested in London in 2012 will have an immense amount of material to work with if Facebook still exists uh, in, in that period. But but we don't we don't have that type of record. And so what we look to are the institutions, the the the, the, the hospitals, especially a little bit later on in, into the 17th century, where where some of these folks find their way. Uh, uh, delivery companies who manage the apprenticeship system, right? Uh, a fair number of these migrants are going to come in, uh, and especially in the late 16th or early 17th centuries, uh, they're going to become apprentices to the trades if they're young men. There are a few young women who also become apprentices, but overwhelmingly it's young men. Young women will be coming in seeking uh, work uh, as, service, as servants and maid servants. And, and it is our assumption that in the great majority of times, folks are not just walking randomly to London. They'll have a contact, perhaps a kinsman or someone that in their local village, uh, the, 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 the pastor might have a connection in London to help them find a place because the vagrancy laws would prevent someone from just wandering, uh, uh, you know, aimless, purposely purposelessly uh, in, into London or from village to village. There's a great anxiety about the young vagrant, the, the masterless young person. There's great anxiety about that. So I, ideally, you should have a contact in London, uh, a house into which you're going to be uh, a servant, either an apprentice or a maidservant. And that, that would be the first step. And, and what we know is, is that a fair number of these apprenticeships are never completed. For one reason or another, the apprentice will, will return home. Perhaps uh, there was a death in the family that creates an opportunity back home. Or perhaps they see their time in London as essentially training, right, as, as, a, bit of, as a bit of education. And then an opportunity comes up back home that they're able to, to pursue. So we do think that economic opportunity is what pulls migrants to London, and to the extent to which they stay and succeed, it's going to be because economic opportunities open up in metropolis. But perhaps as a as a as a plan B, or in some cases maybe a plan A, they'll return to their provincial home, having gained some experience in, in the metropolis. And throughout this time, although there was this high level of inward migration, it's also fair to say that London was a fairly brutal place to live, despite despite its allure. And uh, the death rate was very high. So, um, you know, it, tell us a little bit about what life was actually like uh, on the streets. Uh, someone turns up from, say, Bristol or Newcastle or whatever. Yeah. Uh, they start life as an apprenticeship or a maid or whatever. How difficult is it for them to get on? It, it, it's going to be challenging. Um, and the demographic regime was, was brutal. Uh, if, you're from, if you're from Bristol or Newcastle, then perhaps you'd had some exposure to the kinds of diseases circulating in Metropolis. But, but of course, a lot of our immigrants are going to be coming from villages, rural villages, uh, where they, they just may not have had that exposure uh, at all. Um, when we think about London in this period, um, in, in addition to um, the hope that one doesn't develop a toothache 
um, uh, which could be fatal. <laughs> um, think about the quality of just basic plumbing. Okay, so this is this is a London of chamber pots mm-hmm. and um, and cellars. Okay, in which waste is dumped, stored up, and and cleaned periodically. Can this you is a line- can, can you tell us that that anecdote that that was in the book? Was it Samuel Pepys? Yes, uh, where his this his, is quite disgusting. Yes, his his neighbor's cellar collapsed into his, and 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 a huge um, a huge uh, a collection. I'm using that term um, judiciously. A huge huge collection of of human waste. It was a cesspool, uh, basically, in his cellar. Basically, a cesspool um, spilled into into Peeps's uh, uh, basement, uh, and and one has to assume that that happened with some regularity. So the and, idea was, when you had your when you went to the toilet, you threw it out the window in some instances, or yeah. you collected <laughs> it in a place like your cellar, and then some poor soul whose job it was would come along and clean it out periodically, um, That's right. chuck it and in the river, the, probably. The soil mint in the, in the dung could be carted out to the fields, right? Where mm-hmm. it could be valuable fertilizer. Of course. So, so uh, this is a London in which you watched where you stepped. So uh, we, I think, in, 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 in modern cities are used to a, a sort of curb and gutter system so that the roadway would be high in the center and it would angle out toward the curb where the rainwater would then be funneled to, to drains, right, mm-hmm. and carried away. Uh, in, in medieval cities, and London is largely a medieval city in the period we're talking about in terms of its, 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 its architecture, um, you'd often find city uh, streets that were low in the center. So the idea being that the waste would accumulate in the center and, and hopefully you lived at the top of the hill and not at the bottom of the hill. And a heavy rain would come or, again, that the, the parish or the ward would employ people to carry buckets of water up and just wash down the center channel. This is a London in which the streets carried a fair amount of horse traffic. Mm. Um, which which added to the shall we say texture of the of the of the footpath. It's a London in which you have large um, uh, uh, carriages uh, being pulled by men as well as horses carrying goods. Right. Just think about the amount of of beer that London would consume. Okay, beer was. The all-purpose drink. It was generally l- very light in alcohol. It, it it was it was not left to ferment for very long. But the advantage of beer over water was it had been cooked. And while they didn't have quite yet in our it, for most of our period a, a germ theory of disease, a long experience indicated that the people who drank beer tend to be healthier than the people who drank the stuff from the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all of this is being pulled through the streets uh, and, and the streets, uh, main streets are hugely congested. So you ask about the, the experience of, of London, what we're not able uh, to convey in our book would be the sounds and the smells mm. of, of our subject. I'm intrigued particularly by the sound. There must have been some neighborhoods where 
it was just deafening, right? Horse hooves and wagon wheels on cobblestones. When you have uh, houses that are built close to the street, many of which have upper stories that hang out over the street itself. So, so you'd have an echo chamber. It must have been, it must have been deafening. You mix into that the sounds of, of perhaps manufacturing if you're in a neighborhood where there are iron workers or blacksmiths and so you've got the hammering. All of that clamoring must have, must have made quite a racket. So watch where you walk and cover your ears. And another another thing to do is to make sure that if you're to build your house, you do it upwind of other people, uh, which is why you suggest the uh, the richer parts of London developed out towards the west where the wind came from. So that when you had this phenomenal stench, it actually was washed away from you as, a, as opposed to towards you, which is why the poorer areas were in the east end. And of course, this this became even more acute a, a problem with uh, wood smoke and later coal smoke. Exactly. When, uh, oh, and, and on the river itself as well, of course. Precisely. And, and when we're thinking about the lived experience of London, the smoke must have been incredible. Okay. So just as there's not indoor plumbing, um, they hadn't yet invented electricity. So your, your, your heat source for cooking and domestic use, and plus any manufacturing that you're doing, is going to be a fire. And, and the period that we're talking about, especially as the 17th century goes into the 18th century, is the period of the great development of the Newcastle coal fields. All that coal's coming down, not all of it, but, but vast amounts of it are coming down to London. And so the period of our book is the transition from burning wood or charcoal to increasingly burning sea coal. It's nasty stuff. So it's probably not by accident that the West End is upriver, upwind of the rest of London. If you you take the view from Highgate Hill, I, I, I suspect that the smoke on many days would be one of the first things that you'd notice about London, this sort of cloud hanging over it. And of course, it will be, it will, this will only become worse and worse uh, into the 19th century. But I suspect by the early 18th century, it was very noticeable. So we're talking about a, a dirty, smelly, smoky, uh, quite unhygienic place to live, which I suppose isn't, isn't too unusual for the time. Uh, but of course, in London, this all pointed towards one particular year, and you've already touched upon it when we were talking about St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, which was part of the rebuilding of London after it. And th- that was this dreadful year, ni- uh, 1666, where first there was a, a, an outbreak of plague, and then there, was a, um, then there was the Great Fire of London, both of which took out a swathe of the population. Can you just uh, tell us a little bit about what happened that year? It, it, was, it was tremendous. The, 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 the plague, the, the really, really heavy plague, um, was, was the previous year, into six, so 65 into 66. Uh, and, and that was one uh, in which uh, estimates are up to uh, an eighth, of the population, 12, 12% of the population succumbed to, to plague. And, and that's based on the available statistics, right? The, 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 the government 
uh, had, had long instituted a series of measures to, to accurately record plague in its progress. Uh, and, but, of course, you can imagine that initially uh, there was some reluctance to attribute a death to plague because plague had such a, an anxiety-provoking reputation. Um, so, so I suspect strongly that that 12% is a low estimate. And then, of course, there are others who may have died, who may have been weakened by plague, survived plague, but then later died of of influenza or or toothache or something, you know, because their immune system was was weakened by plague. So, it was a huge demographic hit that London took. And then, of course, uh, September 1666. Uh, the Great Fire it was hot. It was a dry period, and and the fire. You know, London is is a city of wood and thatched wood wood buildings and thatched roofs, and so uh, fire happened periodically. And and the main way to stop a fire was was to pull the building down, pull it down, isolate it, um, essentially make a fire break. But the wind picked up. The embers. Flew. Peeps. Peeps' diary is 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 an incredibly wonderful and graphic um, a testimony to what was going on, and and the, and the fire just spread rapidly beyond beyond the normal measures to control it, ending uh, in consuming over a period of days most of the city. And the good news, though, is that it. On the one hand, we can say. Most of the the city, uh, the city of London, the, the the city within its ancient footprint, was consumed in a few days. But people did have the opportunity to gather up their their crucial possessions and take take shelter in in the open fields. And so, one of the things that that's going to be uh, possible is a relatively rapid recovery. And I I think that. While the fire itself is one of the most dramatic moments uh, in English history in our period, uh, and, and by the way, uh, uh, it's one of the events in which uh, King Charles II and his younger brother uh, James really seemed to 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 they wrote they rose to the occasion. They were out amongst the people. They were very visible, rallying, uh, helping to 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 come up with a way to um, to contain the fire. Uh, and that seemed to lift the, the spirits of many people. And I think in some ways it, 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 that was one of Charles II's uh, uh, great moments uh, as, as a monarch. But I think that, that what, what's remarkable is how rapidly London recovered. And I think it says a great deal about the foundation of London's society and economy that over the course of just the next few years, London is largely rebuilt back on its feet and, and back to business. And, and the growth of London is going to, is going to tick up a notch. So, so I think that the, the combination of the fire and then the rebuilding seem to be something of a catalyst to an acceleration of, of London's growth. It, it, it's really remarkable. And one of the things working on this book uh, with Bob really drove home to me was in, was was how interesting it is that London was able to take a combination of body blows right the the, the plague that took out at least an eighth of the population 
devastating fire, and against the backdrop of a Dutch war that was not going well at all for England, upsetting English trade, which hurt many London interests, you go out five years, ten years, London's bouncing, bouncing back handsomely. Well, so it's, it's all very, a very interesting combination of events, and, I, and that's why we chose to end our book largely with that chapter on plague and fire. It played a crucial role. It came at the time of several other crucial developments. Uh, around this time, we had financial reform, yes. uh, national debt, the establishment of the Bank of England in 1694, and and we also started to have uh, trading companies such as the East India, Muscovy and Royal Africa companies around this time. So so London was turning itself into a very modern financial centre, which of course is, is still one of the things that is remarkable about London here in the 21st century. And, 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 and the, the overseas trading companies, some of the older ones uh, begin in, in the 16th century, um, but they are supplanted during the 17th century by some of the newer ones, such as the East India, the Virginia Company, I think it's important here um, to to note that in the later 17th, 18th centuries, as London is becoming increasingly engaged in international trade, London merchants are investing heavily in overseas plantations, London is becoming fully implicated in the international trade of African enslaved laborers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 it's it's important to acknowledge that uh, fully that that the, the the profit from this Atlantic trade that's flowing back to London that's becoming capital for further investments and further international developments that's largely um, uh, engaged in the plantation economy uh, and that is that's pulling human resources, terrible cost uh, from from Africa. Uh, and so it's, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's just we, we need that we need to recognize that and acknowledge that the role of unfree labor uh, in London's explosive development. Uh, I think the I think the insurance industry, I think I think what goes on at Lloyd's Coffee House is fascinating, uh, right, that 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 increasingly uh, uh, merchants are encouraging one another to pursue very ambitious overseas ventures by pooling the risk through insurance, uh, and I think that's a that's a that's a very very important development. So it's the national debt, the circulation of uh, bills of exchange that will eventually back a, a easily convertible paper currency, the banknote, um, uh, joint stock companies and that the overseas trading companies become uh, foundational for that. But, but the insurance industry and what by the turn of the 18th century is increasingly going to look to us like modern banking, where individual merchants are, gonna, are going to hold cash issue predictable interest and then invest the cash they're holding uh, in in a variety of schemes so all of that really comes together there's there's a there's a coalescence of new financial instruments in the late 17th in uh, 18th centuries and and I think we should we should put in a word for the coffee houses I mentioned Lloyd's I was about to mention this yes but 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 
this whole constellation of coffee, which of course is an international commodity, right, and tea, but coffee, coffee really comes in. Tobacco, which is an international commodity, with newspapers, which are trading in a variety of forms of gossip, but one of those forms of gossip is news about international events that are, are going to affect trade. All of these things are alighting upon the coffee house. Uh, and, and the coffee house uh, is, is, I think, a, a fascinating um, uh, location for the emergence of a number of things that historians would commonly associate with modernity. You actually mentioned that one of the big changes in this period is that the, uh, the most interesting and vital people in the city, um, if you go back to 1550, they would be in the court environment, in other words, connected to the power structures of royalty, etc. And by the end of it, you do find them in the coffee houses discussing things. You're talking about the big literary figures of the age, the big thinkers, uh, etc., and they all migrate to the coffee houses. And, and that brings us back to the social side of it and there was one particular thing that's always fascinated me and I haven't read that much about it but this is um, it's connected as well also to alcohol and it is this is the gin craze which happens late in our period around 1730 1740-ish yep. can, can you tell us a little bit about this because I mean it's not it's maybe not as vital as the development of the coffee houses but it's certainly a quite quite a remarkable episode well we we couldn't resist the temptation to have our Hogarth prints. Yes, they're uh, brilliant. In, they're at the beginning of the book. In, in the book. And, and, and um, Hogarth's contrast between gin and beer, uh, you know, I think historians may quibble. You know, he's, he, he's an artist, right? He's trying to pull together a variety of things in a short space and put it in front of the reader. But, but, but gin was a killer, uh, and uh, and it was uh, largely unregulated. People were just, you know, it was it was a kind of home brew, uh, and and it was highly addictive, uh, and and it, it 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 shocked the authorities at the time. And it seemed to be, you know, it 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 is reminiscent of the way some modern societies look at illicit narcotics, right? Is it? Is it? It's a. It's a scourge. It's a plague, and there are certain types of people who seem to be more vulnerable. But in Hogarth, you know, it's the combination of the the um, the pawn shop and the Undertaker, right? That 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 it just it it gin drove people mad. They lost all perspective. They would sell all their goods. They needed the stuff. So desperately, they it drove them to crime, uh, and eventually drove them uh, to their death. And so that's that's another feature of of modern life. I mean, James the First, of course, condemned tobacco, right? Uh, by the by the by the time of the gin craze, tobacco has has become a very acceptable, right? Very very mature, very sober. Um, uh, a, a type of, of drug. Gin was just other. Gin, gin was its own thing, and uh, and it, it it took a huge toll. It was an extraordinary episode. Um, 
in an extraordinary couple of hundred years. It's a fascinating book. There's loads that we could have gone into that we haven't had time to go into, such as the, uh, you know, the situation concerning uh, crime, punishment, uh, yes. <laughs> all sorts of bits and pieces like that, which absolutely held me wrapped when I was um, when I was reading yes. the book. But uh, we're running out of time. So uh, instead of that, can you just perhaps move on, go back to yourself and tell us if there's anything new that you're working on? Yes, I'm, I'm currently wrapping up a book uh, for Paul Gray Macmillan on London's involvement in provincial reform uh, during this period. Uh, I'm going back to some of my research on livery companies. And livery companies, uh, some of the wealthier ones, uh, hold a great number of charities. I mentioned philanthropy earlier. And while a great deal of philanthropy was focused on London itself, some philanthropy was focused on provincial communities. And I talk about... The, the sort of the moral economy of London and how this encouraged philanthropy, uh, but then how it connected in the earlier part of, of, of the period to concerns about the dark corners of the land, the persistence uh, of Catholicism in the North and in the West well into the 17th century. And I talk about how some of the livery companies became involved in this process of, of, of managing uh, schoolhouses and preaching lectureships in provincial communities that were that were set up by natives of those communities who came to London, made wealth, uh, and and wanted to use that wealth uh, as a sort of power lever to overturn um, essentially the Catholic uh, gentry uh, and their control. So it's an interesting process of, again, circulation, one of the themes of the book we've just been talking about. Uh, people come to London. They make they make uh, they make a lot of money, but then they want to convert that money uh, into influence back in the provinces. And they it, one way to do that is to use livery company philanthropy. So that's that's I'm wrapping that book up right now. Fascinating. Well, well, good luck with that, and I hope that it's as big a success as as this particular book, which, as I say, I found absolutely fascinating, and I'm so glad that you wrote it, and I'm so glad that you came here to be able to talk to us about it. So thanks very much indeed, Joe. Very good, Nicholas, and enjoyed talking with you. Take care. Bye. And that was Joseph Ward, one of the authors of London, A Social and Cultural History, 1550 to 1750. This is Nicholas Walton from the New Books Network, wishing you a good day from here in London. Thank you.